and um, annotations, or actually may have just come loose from excessive turning right, right there that we've printed it in the bulletin just in case it's... Uh, just kidding, everybody. Just kidding. Uh, that's my ridiculous, facetious way of saying it. This is a book that we're not in very much and uh, may be completely unknown to you. And I want to say on the front end, I, okay, my, I just realized my whole life I've said Haggai, and there's no I after the G's. And so I think it's Haggai, but I think I'm probably going to fall back to saying Haggai, so I'm just going to say that if that's okay, and, and we'll just all pretend that there's an I there, if that's okay. Um, I, this, this is one of the minor prophets. That the, the minor prophets are not called that because they're less important than the other prophets. It's just it's a, it's about the length. It's a very short book, and it's nestled with some of these shorter books. It's not long like Isaiah or Jeremiah, but uh, this is from the Old Testament. And uh, we're going like, to look in chapter two, and we are doing this as uh, as part of Advent. And an Advent, you know, an Advent is a coming. We live between two Advents. The first advent of the Lord Jesus Christ and the second advent, that's going to be relevant even to, uh, the, to the text, but we're in Haggai chapter 2. And um, just, just to start off, I don't know about your house, but the Christmas music has picked up in the Haybig house and uh, in the Haybig cars, and there might be some of you too. Love this time of year, found a satellite radio, one of the stations that's just nothing but, and I'm parked there for right now. And, uh, you know, there's one that I know of offhand. There's one Christmas song that actually every year, and I I don't even like saying this, but I'm going to say it because it's relevant. But it actually kind of discourages me every year. And that's weird because, so I mean, Christmas music encourages me so much that I even cheat during the year and listen to it, you know, like in April. But, uh, but there's one Christmas song that is not a go-to song for me. It's not a hymn. It's not like a sacred Christmas song. But it's, uh, it's the most wonderful time of the year. And it's the, uh, it's the part about where it says that, um, you know, there'll be parties host. I can't remember the exact words. There'll be parties hosting, marshmallows roasting, or is it toasting? It's toasting. I also heard roasting. Churches have split over smaller things than this. Okay. The session will put together a study committee, and we'll get to the bottom of where we land as a church on, on which one it is. But uh, the marshmallows uh, roasting or toasting, and uh, caroling out in the snow, and it says, and scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. Now, I don't know how much of this is realism or how much of it's just Brian's cynicism, but when I hear that, those words, and I feel this way a little bit more every year, I just go, no, we won't. No, we won't. That's not how Christmas is now. Because it's probably not going to snow. Some of that's a geography choice, I know, but I mean, it's probably not going to snow. And, and just, it just seems like fewer and fewer people ever carol. But, but, that's it. but we just don't sit around and do things like make fires, you know, and tell our stories and talk about what Christmases were in years past, even if it's from our, our family history. I mean, usually leading up to Christmas, it feels like, uh, people nervously Christmas Eve night asking each other, when does Walgreens close? You know, and, and nervous about what the answer is. And it's just kind of tense, and I should have gotten on this earlier. And so I don't know how much of that cynicism or being realistic or what, but it's, it's kind of like 
through, through the nostalgia, there's the feeling that maybe, as much as I enjoy this, because I love Christmas, but maybe it's not as great as it was at one time. And, and we don't seem to be telling each other the stories of, of how great it was with anticipation of it being that great now. All right, the context of this passage is people actually in a time that for them would be like Christmas time for us. The first verse is going to talk about a month and a year, and it's going to sound very Old Testament-ish, and you might sort of tune out, but it's placing this prophecy during a Jewish feast. And it's the Feast of Tabernacles. And that was a festive time that felt, maybe in some ways for them, like Christmas time feels for us. Lots of tradition, lots of celebration, lots of history, and even nostalgia. And here's what's happening. The first great temple of God, the one that Solomon built, that was just the temple par excellence, had been destroyed. It's really hard for us to get what that did to the Jewish identity. And the people were in Babylonian captivity. They've been brought back to the promised land, and they're going to rebuild the temple. And they know, they know that with all the work this is going to take, when they get through, it's not going to be as good as the first one. It's going to be inferior, and they know that on the front end. And it's discouraging. And the work is already starting to spin its wheels and lose traction. That's the context. Haggai chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In the seventh month, on the twenty-first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, please help us as we come to a part of your word that is if we may say it, even, even more unfamiliar to most of us than other parts. And we may struggle with 
any part of your word, but may feel it especially as this is just it's unfamiliar ground. Lord, let us hear good news. And let us hear about your son. And let us gain courage because we need it. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I, I don't know how many of you saw just this, this weekend's Greenville Journal, but the timing was uncanny because uh, as I was sort of steeped in this passage, there was, a, there was a column by a Jewish writer and rabbi in our community, and he was, he was thinking back about his own past. And uh, again, the timing was, was amazing. He, he talked about how he, had, he was not much of a crier, but he had been moved to tears. The last time he had been moved to tears was when he was in synagogue and the, the synagogue congregation was chanting from one of the psalms. And it was a psalm that you used during the Feast of Tabernacles. And it brought back to him the memory of all the past Feasts of, of Tabernacles. And it, it really got to him, just the nostalgia of it. Now, I, again, I say that to say, I guess, I guess I, I hold it up as sort of a little mini piece of evidence that for the Jewish community... This feast, this time, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, um, had so much history and tradition to it that it would touch you deeply the way Christmas time does for, for most of us. And it was a feast, not, not that the people thought up, but that God gave. And it was to remind them, when they got to the Promised Land, remember that I brought you through the wilderness. I, I brought my people through 40 years in the wilderness when you had no house. And maybe now you're in your sixth, seventh generation of being homeowners and landowners, but it was not like in the wilderness. And the reason you're a homeowner is because God was faithful and took you through that time. It was a, a week-long feast where people would make booths out of you know, sticks and branches and twigs. And I'm sure over time they learned how to decorate them and put flowers in there. And people had cuter booths than other people's booths and figured that out. But it, it just had a whole tradition and history to it. All right, it's in that time that this prophecy comes. Now, there's another piece of history and meaning and identity that's attached to that because the Feast of Tabernacles was also tied in with the building of the first temple. That it was during the Feast of Tabernacles that after years and years of work and extremely expensive building materials amassed for this project that Solomon's um, team completed the temple in Jerusalem. And when they dedicated it, something happened. You know, if you, if, think about it this way. When does a building, even the temple of God, when does it go from being a completed building site to being God's house? And if you had been there that day, there would have been no doubt how to answer that question because when they dedicated the temple, when it was completed, the glory of the Lord, the seen visible glory of God, fell from heaven and filled the house. It refers to the temple as the house. So much so that the priest whose job was to be in there fled. It's the house of God. That was part of the history. Now it's the Feast of Tabernacles. Centuries later, the first one's been destroyed by the enemies of God. The people have been in captivity in Babylon. They've been brought back. That's a whole other set of sermons. 
And there's this building project, and they're looking at rebuilding the temple, and they know that no matter how hard they work, it's not going to be as good as the old one was. And there's some old people there who saw the first one before it was destroyed. And it moves them to tears that it's not going to be as good. Um, Look at this passage that's in italics under the Haggai passage. This is from another book that may be unfamiliar to you, but it's describing some of the same time. This is from Ezra. And look at, look at what it says. And th- Again, this is the second temple, not the first one. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priest and their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. Do you get the picture? Festive time, lots of tradition, lots of nostalgia, and even part of the history wrapped up with construction of the temple, but they've got this unfinished temple and they know it's not going to be as good. They're entrusted with rebuilding it, and they're looking at it, and the building project just becomes, starts to just come unglued. What do they need to hear from God as they're discouraged and overwhelmed? And here's what God shows them. He shows them the past. He shows them the present. And he shows them the future. And what does He say about the past? Look in verse 4. Start about halfway through verse 4. He says, Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. If you get a Bible concordance, and that's that's just a reference tool where you can look up any word in the Bible, how many times it occurs. If you look up the word Egypt after the stories of people being in Egypt and leaving There are just tons of entries. And it's because God keeps coming back to this to say, don't forget who you are. And what's he saying? Why is it that that you ever came into the promised land and had a temple? And when you were taken into captivity by your enemies, how were you saved and brought back to the promised land? Why are you standing here looking at an unfinished building in the promised land? Because I saved you. Because I made a covenant with you that you're my people and I'll rescue you. There's a, there's a minister in our denomination named Steve Brown who just has a way with words. And he once said that if you see a, a turtle up on a fence post, you probably figure he didn't get up there by himself. And that's how it is with the people of God. You know, if you see someone descended from Adam who shows up, according to the New Testament, as a child of wrath but who now loves God and follows God and is not one of God's enemies, but is one of God's people, that means that God was at work. Remember your past. But then he points out the future. I mean, excuse me, the present. How does he point out the present? One is just through an emphasis that's all the way through Haggai. Just in this this passage, these nine verses, God is identified the same way six times. Did you hear it? The Lord of hosts, 
the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. If you go outside of this passage eight more times in a fairly small book, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts. What does that title mean? Because there's all kinds of titles for God. The Lord of hosts. Who are the hosts? The hosts are the beings of heaven, especially the angels. The heavenly hosts. Now, when sinners on earth see an angel, the first thing the angel has to say is, don't be afraid. Fear not. But they are afraid of God. They, I don't mean fear that he's going to crush them. He knows who the bad angels are and he knows who his good angels are. It's not the fear of being crushed. It's just his glory and his greatness and his might. They, they have experienced it personally. Now think about this. If one angel can level a town, and again, that may weird you out to even talk about these things, but that's how Scripture presents it. If one angel can do that, the millions and millions and millions of angels, what are they capable of? But they see themselves as under their great king, the Lord God, who is more powerful than everyone else. Now that God, I'm the Lord of hosts, I am the Lord of hosts, is coming to them. And what is he saying? Look, look back in verse, uh, verse 4. Work. Why? For I'm with you. And then what does he say in verse 5? My spirit remains in your midst. Think about that. Why were you in this captivity with pagans, the Babylonians? Why were you in captivity? Because you and your ancestors had chosen idols and turned your back on me. Rather than turn to me, you turned away from me. You broke the covenant that I have with you and you alone as a people. And when I could have wiped my hands of the whole matter, when I could have opposed you, I brought you back. It's now the second time into the promised land. And here's what I'm telling you. I am still with you. I'm in your midst. Don't think that I'll be limited to that building and until that building is built that I'm just kind of out there in the nether region somewhere. Right now my spirit is with you. Even though you don't deserve it. Because I want to be. Now with that in mind, what does he say for them to do? He says, I want you to work. I want you to finish building this house. But he also says some other things. What did he say three times? He says, hey, Zerubbabel. Hey, Joshua. Hey, all the remnant of the people who came back. What does he say to all of them? Be strong. I want you to be strong. And that is a recurring biblical exhortation when people have daunting tasks in front of them. Be strong. And another recurring exhortation is what? Fear not. Work. Now think about what he's saying. Because of who I have been to you, and because of who I am to you, I want you to work. Who are the people he's talking to? He's talking to discouraged people. And here's the beautiful thing. Part of God's presence with them is being realistic. How is he realistic? Look at what he says in verse 3. 
It's, it's always intimidating when God tells you what you're thinking and feeling. And Jesus did that a lot. Here's what he says. How do you see... Uh, excuse me, verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? But then what does he say? Work. If that's the past and that's the present, what's the future? And this is where he starts to say things to them where you and I this morning have a real advantage because they cannot, as well as we can, know what these words mean. It's not that they're meaningless. It's just to say we have a vantage point where we know what this means more than they did. He says, here's the future. I'm going to fill this house with greater glory. Not just refill, but there's good. We're not going to just maintain or go back. We're going to increase. I'm going to fill the house with glory. I'm going to shake the universe. And I'm going to give peace. Now, there's just a lot going on here. We already talked about, I'm going to fill the house. That was something, they knew that language. The temple was a building, it was a house where God filled it with His glory. He says, I'm going to do that again, but the glory the second time will be greater than the first. And then he says this, I'm going to shake everything and everybody. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and all the nations. What does that mean? It's prophetic language that's getting at what happened when God would show up somewhere and there would be a physical response in the environment. God would appear in places and the places where He would appear would shake. They would literally physically tremble. He came down on Mount Sinai and besides the cloud and the smoke and the fire and the trumpet, Mount Sinai begins to tremble and shake. Uh, When Isaiah saw a vision of God in the temple, it says that that the the posts that held the temple up just begin to shake when the presence of God visibly appears. But when you see those occurrences, typically it's limited to just that place where God is showing Himself to those people. But He says, no, no, no. I want you to work, but I want you to know something I'm going to do. I'm going to shake the cosmos. I'm going to shake the stars. I'm going to shake the sun. I'm going to shake the ocean where no people live. I'm going to shake everything. I'm going to shake every nation, ones that have never heard of me or that don't even know me. And the glory will be greater than it was in the first temple. Now, they get that message. What are we able to see that they didn't know yet? I want you to think about what time of year this is. And I want you to think about the very familiar story of the shepherds out with their sheep, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And sometimes it's the familiar stories that are hardest to see what's there because we go on autopilot. The shepherds are out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel, at first it's one, angel of the Lord comes and gives this message to the shepherds about the Messiah being being born. And then it says this, And then with the angel was the multitude of whom? The heavenly hosts. And what has God's title been? I am the Lord of hosts. 
I'm the Lord of hosts. Well, these shepherds saw the hosts. And what is the first thing out of their mouth when they sing about the Messiah's arrival? Glory and peace. One of the verses that that we quote the most during Advent is from the first um, chapter of John. And, And I want us to hear this with new ears. That John says, The Word became flesh. He's talking about the Son of God, who is God Himself. The Word became flesh, and He, in English, it usually says, dwelt among us. But in Greek, it says He tabernacled among us. He was and dwelt in a tabernacle in our midst. What was the tent? Was it skins? Was it canvas? No. The tabernacle was His flesh. That God became man. And the Word dwelt among us. And we have seen Him and beheld His what? His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Think about that. And then think about... That's in John 1. And then think about something that Jesus says in the very next chapter. The... The disciples are looking at the temple. It's the second temple. It's the one built during this time. And they're very, they're very taken with it. I mean, it was, it, was, it was an impressive building. And they're talking about the temple. And what did Jesus say? Destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll rebuild it. And boy, did that statement get him into trouble. That was cited at his mock trial. And John explains what that cryptic statement means, because what does it mean? John says, in case you're lost here, um, what he's talking about is his body. That the temple was his human flesh, filled with a greater glory, and to to a greater extent, and in a most surprising way, more so than this building in Jerusalem could have been. Now, what are we supposed to do with that? Because I want want to go back to the people in Haggai. God is saying, whether you understand what I'm talking about or not, I'm with you, and a day is coming when a greater glory is going to come to Jerusalem. A greater glory is going to come. And by the way, I left this out. You remember what the guy said, Simeon, when Jesus and Mary came into the what? To the temple on the day of Jesus' circumcision, and the Holy Spirit, who had not left Judea's midst, the Holy Spirit prompted Simeon to go to the temple that day, and he had told Simeon, you're not going to die until you see the Messiah. And he sees this low-income family with this baby, and he goes over to them, and he takes baby Jesus. By the way, it never says he asked Mary's permission before he did that, which is amazing. But he takes this baby Jesus, and it says he holds him up in his arms, and he says... Now I can die because you told me that I would get to see him and here he is. And who is he? He is light for the Gentiles. It's amazing that he would even be thinking about the Gentiles standing in Jerusalem outside the temple because no one else was. He'll be light for the Gentiles and for his people Israel, he is glory. Hands him back. Here's what that means. 
from our vantage point, and this is being kind of simplistic, God is coming to discourage people who are just intimidated and run down and they're demotivated. If I do all this work, it's not going to be as good as the first one. And he's saying, in effect, if you don't drive that nail, the Messiah doesn't come. Isn't that weird? If you don't place those stones, if you don't cut that timber, you're not going to see something that will blow Solomon's temple out of the water. And that kind of leaves us going, okay, but yeah, but why do it that way? Why? I mean, it's not like you need me to help you with your timetable. Why do I have to drive the nail and place the stone and cut the timber for your Messiah to come? And God does not explain that. He says, I'm going to do that. And because you know I'm going to do that, work. You're my people. I'm committed to you. I'm with you. I love you. I'm the Lord of hosts to have all power. I want you to work. And one of these days I'm going to do something that you won't believe. Now, where does that leave us? Because here's the thing. The temple imagery that you find in a lot of the New Testament is no longer the building in Jerusalem, and it's no longer Jesus himself as embodied temple but it's the people of God. This growing building made of human building blocks filled with God Himself. And I want you to think about this. I want you to think about, have you ever heard, have you ever heard about the Christian past and heard about amazing things that God did? And then you kind of looked around now and went, now is lame. Do you know what I mean? Kind of, I mean, it's almost like tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. Like maybe, and this could look different ways. It could be, it could be someone in this room who's a twenty-something, and let's say that when she was in college, God really worked in her life. I'm not thinking of any one name here, but like you know, God really worked in her life. She really felt God come near, and and just do amazing things in her life. And she started reading about, let's say, uh, let's say she started reading about taking the gospel around the world and it touched her deeply and she graduates from college and maybe she goes on a short term missions trip and is kind of like trying it on for size is consider maybe going into missions full time one day and so let's say she does short term missions for one year and on her missions team she sees so much pettiness and so much squabbling and she sees so few people become Christians in the area where they're ministering that she comes home and just decides to make a complete vocational change. And even though, you know, she still believes in God, still believes in Jesus, still comes to church, still reads her Bible, kind of deep down there's this crushing disappointment that I thought there would just be these glory days. And you know what? It's just kind of business as usual. In fact, honestly, it's kind of all I can do to keep the trains running on time. To go to work and have some friendships and maybe do some nonprofit stuff and I don't know, kind of lost some steam. It could be, it could be a man who uh, he learned about things that God did in the past in the church. Maybe it was reading about the apostles. Maybe it's reading about the Reformation. Maybe it's reading about churches that just grew and tons of people were converted and God's people went out and fed 
took care of the poor, clothed the homeless, built homes for the homeless, did all these great things in Jesus' name. And he thought, man, that's the kind of person I want to do. And he looked up, and he got married, and he had kids. And he realizes now at the age of 40 that I have become the very thing I thought I wasn't going to be. I thought I was going to be those, one of those people that's a participant in these great stories of what God's doing around the world. And, and I, I, I maybe, maybe I, I read the Bible once a week, and I, I like it when I do, and I, and I like my church, but it, it's just literally all I can do to maybe pray once in a while and sort of get people where they're supposed to be and not just collapse before 9 p.m. It, it is a young mother with two young children... And she has, you know, she's heard about mothers of the past who loved Jesus and taught their children about God and His ways and His Word and and instructed them and sat down with them and explained the Bible. And her younger child is colicky and just takes her to the edge. And sometimes when the child is colicky, she takes the older one and she sets them in front of the, you know, sets the two-year-old in front of the TV. And she feels guilty that... The child is in front of the TV and is not being taught Scripture, but she goes and takes care of the colicky child. Then she comes back and realizes that the two-year-old changed the channels and is no longer watching a children's show. You know, she's watching Divorce Court or something like that. And she feels guilty. I'm never going to be that mother that I read about that loves God and teaches... I mean, do you see what I'm saying? Like, to look back on people that mattered and times that mattered when amazing things happened, when God came near in the church, and to kind of look around now and go, it's not like that now. What is God saying to us? Here's what He's saying. I have not shaken the cosmos yet. Now what my son did when my glory came to the temple, secured it, But the book of Hebrews quotes this passage from Haggai and says, now there's a shaking yet to come. One of these days, God is going to take the physical universe and He is going to shake it out. Picture like a rug being shaken. It's not a shaking to destroy. It's a shaking to cleanse. Take away everything that's not real rug. He's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. And we're going to talk about this more when we end Revelation. I hope you'll keep coming. But the image at the end of Revelation is that the whole universe becomes the temple of God. That the ultimate fulfillment of Haggai 2 is that not just Jerusalem, not just Judea, not just planet Earth, but the whole universe is the temple of God. And there is no sin. And there are no enemies. And there is peace. Finally, there's shalom. The thing that should have been in Jerusalem, the city of peace, is finally throughout the universe. What does that mean for us? It means this, and it's weird to say it this way, but it seems that this is what God is saying. I don't see how me getting on my knees and praying for my friend leads to the Messiah coming back and shaking the cosmos. And God says in His Word, it does. I don't see how going to coffee with someone that I normally would not spend time with, I don't see how that brings the Messiah back 
to shake the cosmos. And God says, but it does. I don't see how me maybe skipping a meal or skipping a day of meals to fast and pray that God would do some things in my life I've never seen or that God would do things in this person's life that he or she has never seen or in Greenville that we've never seen. How does just that little secret act, how does that cause ultimately the Messiah to come back and shake the whole thing? And God says, I'm not going to explain the how, but I'm going to tell you that it does. And I'm with you, and I want you to work. And I want to end with this, or two things. Believe me, I get this, I think you get this, the apostles get this. We get tired. We get discouraged that friendships didn't turn out the way we thought or this local church didn't turn out the way we thought or ministry didn't turn out the way we thought or really investing in this non-Christian friend did not turn out the way we thought and we get discouraged and God is coming and saying, I don't want you to do the rest of your life today. I want you to do today, today. I want you to continue to pick up that book and I want you to continue to pray to me. I want you to continue to worship. I want you to continue to open your home. I want you to look around and look at people who need the Lord Jesus and move toward them day by day. And I'm with you. Let me end with this. this I don't know if this will hit you, but it hit me. There's, there's a, a, an amazing book on writing by an author named Anne Lamott called Bird by Bird. And the way she got the title was, uh, this is in the introduction, she said when she was on family vacation when she was young, her brother is 10 years old, and he had waited for three months till the last minute to, to finish a writing project. He was supposed to write about birds. And so they're on a family vacation. This is due the next day, and he's surrounded by binder paper with little scribbles about birds. And he's freaking out. He's overwhelmed. And she said she still remembers her father sitting down next to him, and he put his arm around his 10-year-old son, and he said, quote, bird by bird, buddy. Just take it bird by bird. Lunch by lunch. Scripture verse by scripture verse. Co-worker by co-worker. Community group by community group work. He's with us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do get discouraged. We want to see the glory days like we've read about, heard about, great conversions, great changes to society, great changes in us, growth, excitement. It may all feel like a disappointment or very mundane. Have mercy on us. Make it very real to us that as we continue in these slight momentary afflictions, that you are preparing for us the weight of glory that we can't even imagine. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.